So hello, I'm Alex Rockeen. I'm a barrister at Thurden and Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined today um, in the shed on what I think they're calling Book Day uh, by book Dr. Day. Lucy Series. Why I'm saying Book Day will become clear in a second. But those of you who have watched these things before will know I'm always really keen that the person I'm speaking to introduces themselves rather than me trying to uh, mansplain at them. So Lucy, just, just give us a sort of pen picture of yourself and introduction. Thank you, Alex. It's great to be back in the shed. Um, gosh, who am I? I I'm a socio-legal researcher, and that means that I am interested in the law, but I'm interested in where the law sits and how it shapes uh, society and, the, and its wider effects. Um, my preoccupations of, in the broadest possible sense, about power relations between people who draw on care and support, uh, the professionals and paid carers that look after them and their families and friends and so on. Um, and that, that interest comes from my own experiences working in a, a different variety of care services, so care homes, supported living, all sorts of places. Um, and the particular piece of legislation I've been looking at for most of the last uh, 10 years has been the Mental Capacity Act and the Deprivation of Liberty Safeguards. There are so many pieces there which I'd love to pick up on, but for, for present purposes, I want to focus in on why we're talking about it being called Book Day, because this You've just published, and it's one thing I really want to emphasize, this is brilliant, that it's open access, and I'll obviously put a link uh, uh, on this, um, a book called Deprivation of Liberty in the Shadows of the Institution. And it's it's an extraordinary book, but Lisa, can you sort of give us the, the, the elevator pitch for what it is, and then we can kind of dive into some of the things that it describes. Okay. Um, okay. So the first thing to say again is do not buy this book because you can get it for free on the website. So don't spend your money, just download it for free and read it or don't read it. Um, so this book started, Alex, as, as a paper I tried to write in 2014, just after the Cheshire West judgment. So uh, for people who are listening, who are not sure what the Cheshire West judgment is, it was a Supreme Court ruling in 2014 that looked at what do we mean by deprivation of liberty when we are talking about people who live in community care services? Um, so we've got quite a, a kind of well-established understanding of deprivation of liberty or detention around prisons, about uh, psychiatric detention, and they're, they're considered these paradigmatic cases. And Cheshire West was looking at three people with intellectual disabilities who lived in, um, I'm going to put quote marks around this, but if you're listening, you can't see that, the community. Uh, what is the community? Is one of the themes in the book and the, the, the community just means not hospital so it can mean care homes it can mean supported living it can mean private homes it can mean all kinds of places as long as they're not recognized as being more traditional larger institutions and some of these people were living in a, in um, what was called a, a small facility which doesn't sound very home-like does it a small facility for people with learning disabilities um Another guy was living in a flat, uh, which sounded a bit like supported living. So he was living with uh, three other people with disabilities and people were coming in uh, to, to support them. And, and one, uh, one of the young women was living with her foster mother. So she'd, she'd recently turned 18. So in a very, very domestic kind of setup, very, I mean, as close as you can get to family without it being family, really. And the question was, were, were any of them deprived of their liberty? And if so, why? And the Supreme Court ruled that all three of them were. And Lady Hale, uh, who's, who's uh, been involved with the mental capacity jurisdiction since its very inception in the 80s, 
handed down this uh, acid test, it's called, of deprivation of liberty. And it said, you're deprived of your liberty if you're subject to continuous supervision and control, and you're not free to leave the place where you live. And that applies regardless um, of whether it's normal for somebody with your kind of disability to be restricted in that way, even if other people think it's in your best interest or it's the least restrictive uh, setup possible, that those questions really come to is the deprivation of liberty justified, not the fundamental question of whether you are deprived of your liberty. Um, and there's a sentence in the Cheshire West judgment that I think is actually in some ways the most important sentence of all, and it hasn't really been looked at. And Lady Hale says, well, does it make a difference that some of these people are living in, in domestic homes? And I think she was probably thinking particularly of um, Mig, who lived with her foster mother at that point. And she says, well, no, I don't think it does. Why should it make any difference whether you're in an institution or in a home? And it's this sentence that really was the starting point for this article, I wanted to say, because our, historically, our whole way of thinking about deprivation of liberty and rights to liberty and liberty safeguards, particularly for people with mental disabilities, has been very bound up with whether they're in what we think of as a home or an institution. And it's this sentence, I think, that in some ways has led to some of the most surprising and shocking outcomes of Cheshire West. Um, so we now are able to say, you know, that several hundred thousand people many of them, most of them living in community settings are deprived of their liberty. That's loads of people in care homes, particularly older adults, people in supported living services, which was set up to give people, you know, independence and choice and control and rights are now categorized by law as detained. And you can see this, um, this kind of wave of law spreading out into very domestic spaces. So we're now seeing cases coming to court where families are being told, yes, you are detaining your relative. And, and there's something for me that's really quite transgressive about this. And, and I started trying to write about this in an article in 2014 and the article kind of got out of control. So I put it in a drawer and, and forgot about it for a while. And I ended up presenting on it at a conference about the history of institutionalization. So that added a kind of historical angle to this. Um, and I pitched it to Bristol University Press. He said, well, we, we don't think this is a short book. We think this needs to be quite a long book. So that, that's how we ended up with this. Um, and by the end of the book, I'd given this phenomenon a name. And the name that I came up with for what I was trying to write about was social care detention. So social care detention is the recognition and regulation of living arrangements in community settings as a deprivation of liberty. And they are generally speaking regulated through social care authorities. So the lead professional, for example, is usually the social worker uh, rather than psychiatrist. Psychiatrists actually play a really marginal role in all of this. Um, and I think social care detention is in some ways a very new phenomenon. We can see it's only starting to be realized now uh, by states across Europe, mostly because of the European Convention. Um, Australia is starting to think about it. Canada's thinking about it. Activists in the USA are talking about it. And we're starting to say things like actually people in group homes are maybe detained. It's not just people in hospitals um, and even people in supported living in their own homes. So the book is about social care detention and it's saying, well, how did we end up here and what does it all mean? One word. That was a wonderful description. Thank you. Please all race out and buy it. Or don't buy it. Please all race out and download it. <laughs> don't buy it. <laughs> don't buy it. But it is, it's a very nice book to look at, but, but don't buy it because uh, you can get it for free. One word just really leapt out at me, uh, at me from that description. That was transgressive. Mm. Can you just, what, why transgressive? Because transgressive normally doesn't, 
doesn't always have the most positive connotations. Yeah. But can you sort of run me, run me through your thought, thought process there? Yeah. So it, it's something I talk about in some of the earlier chapters of the book. So the story goes like this. Um, in the past, before we were enlightened, we locked up hundreds of thousands of people in these large institutions. So it began, I mean, we started very gradually in the late 18th century, it gathered pace in the 19th century. And by the middle of the 20th century, we had over 230,000 people locked up in places like, um, well, they were called by then the mental hospitals, but before they were called the mental hospitals, they were called the asylums and they were called the mental deficiency colonies. So the, the, the state had a very active policy of in the early 20th century of acid and rounding up disabled people and locking them up to try and stop them having sex, basically, because they were worried about them procreating. Um, and then Clive Unsworth, who is a historian um, of this, this area of law, who used to be at Cardiff, he's, he's a great scholar, uh, calls this the carceral era. Now, the carceral era ha had all kinds of ideologies bound up in it. And in the 19th century, people thought it was actually quite a kind thing to do to build these as lovely asylums because they were because they were better than the workhouses um, and some of the alternatives. Uh, but obviously, you know, they, they weren't great places to be. By the middle of the 20th century, public opinion had really turned against these carceral solutions. The, the asylums, the mental hospitals had really come to be associated in the public consciousness with um, terrible things and terrible places. And we wanted to close them down. So the, the story of the second half of the 20th century is this kind of story of enlightenment where we realize institutions are bad places, we're gonna shut them down. It takes a long time. Um, it takes a long time to build the alternatives in the community. And it, we see these, um, I've, one of the chapters in the book that I enjoyed researching the most is about this fantastic grassroots work that's being done by people that I, I later on in the book call empowerment entrepreneurs who are coming up with ways to get people out and support them living in the community. So people like Jim Mansell, uh, the Campaign for the Mentally Handicapped, the Southwark Consortium, the people who were inventing supported living and inventing the real form of care in the community that was anchored in rights. And we see these new ideologies coming in that will sound really familiar to people today. So personalization, independence, choice and control. And, and when you really get to the guts of what personalization, independence and choice and control are about, they're about trying to dismantle institutionalization in all its forms. They're about trying to get rid of these carceral legacies that are kind of carried forth into care. Um, so, of course, by the end of the 20th century, you know, we've done it. We've got everyone out. We've, we have still got this slight problem highlighted with Winterbourne view of, you know, about two and a half to three thousand people still detained in hospital. But for the most part, people are living in the community. And, you know, we all pat ourselves on the back and say, you know, we live in an age of choice and control and person centered care and so on. And this is what I call post carceral ideology. But the problem is for anyone who's worked in these services, who's worked in social care, we know that the we know that it's not quite that straightforward. Um, so we, we know that probably a small group home is a far better place to be than a mental deficiency colony in 1950, right? But at the same time, it's not the same as living in your own home. You know, you probably didn't choose to be there. You probably didn't choose who you live with. There's probably a whole range of everyday choices um, that you and I, Alex, probably take for granted in our days that these people aren't making. And people, um, particularly within critical disability studies and the disabled people's movement, start to call these places in the community mini institutions. And they start to say, well, you know, actually, 
you know, these, these, th there are still problems here. And I, I call this phenomenon the institutional treadmill, this idea that we keep trying to move forwards away from this carceral past, and yet we keep discovering these dratted restrictive practices and institutional rules in the community. And so social care detention is uh, this, this development that happens in the 21st century, where we start to say, well, God, do you know what? Maybe these practices are so restrictive that actually we should be labeling them as a form of detention. Now, at one level, that's really appealing because it's speaking to this recognition that actually, yes, they are quite restrictive places to be. Um, it's speaking to a, re a recognition that actually they can be quite dangerous places to be. You know, we, we, we probably have as many abuse scandals in the community as we do in hospitals. Um, you know, it's not a panacea to just shut down the hospitals, even though we should be doing that too. People can still be very restricted and restrained and secluded even in the community. Um, so what we try to do is we try to regulate these practices. We think, well, we can't, you know, we, where, where else is there to go after we've got people out of hospital? Probably nowhere. So, so what can we do? I know we'll throw in a lot more law and a lot more checks and balances and safeguards. So you have these reformers, and, and I would have included myself in this a few years ago, Alex, saying, actually, there are really good tactical reasons to label these care practices, even in the community, even in supported living, as a deprivation of liberty. So we can throw a kind of regulatory dragnet over these practices. But of course, that's quite upsetting, isn't it? If you've spent your whole life trying to get people out of institutions into the community, if you, Western societies are really dependent on formal care services. Many of us are only able to go to work because somebody somewhere else is looking after our relations in these places. Um, and we, we don't want to think of them as equivalent to prisons. We don't want, even want to think of them as a bit like the institutions of the past. And, and people did and still do find it extremely upsetting to have the care of their relatives, the care of the people they're supporting labelled as a deprivation of liberty. So that's what I mean when I say it's transgressive. It's, it's applying a label that we thought we'd left behind to things that we're still doing now. Um, and, and, and there's something dispiriting about that, I think. Oh, gosh, that's fascinating. And so it's dispiriting. It's, it could be dispiriting. It could be upsetting. Mm. In the kind of last five minutes, I would love to talk to you for all <laughs> afternoon, but we, I, I, I try and keep these roughly to, to, to 20 minutes. It might be dispiriting. It might be upsetting. Is it wrong? Mm. So... I think the question of is it's wrong depends on why you're asking the question in the first place. So what I wanted to get with, to grips with in the book is why did we, and I include myself in this, Alex, why did we start asking the question, are these people deprived of their liberty? And there's two broad camps that I identify. The first I call abolitionists, um, and that's a word that I've taken from um, prison abolition uh, literature, actually. And these are people who want to eradicate carceral practices wherever they find them, um, the kind of totemic law of course connected with abolitionism is the convention on the rights of persons with disabilities and that says look deprivation of liberty is even happening here and we need to stop it happening altogether um then there's a second group of people who i call the reformers and there's a, there's a very proud tradition in in britain of using legal frameworks anchored in the right to liberty to try and reform care practices um, going back to the kind of asylum reforms of the 19th century and they're saying, well, you know what, actually, it's quite hard to completely eradicate some of these things. You know, these are some really difficult situations. Um, so the question for, the, for reformers, the question 
is it wrong to call it a deprivation of liberty is probably better reframed as is it useful to call it a deprivation of liberty and I think I think what I would say is the liberty safeguards under the Mental Capacity Act have forced us to confront some issues that were really um, difficult to confront. Um, they forced a real reckoning with the realities of some parts of social care. And I think that's been really important to do. The other thing they've done is create new legal tools for uh, potentially for the for the person whose rights are being restricted and their families, although we know from our research that actually they're very hard for them to use. Um, maybe the liberty protection safeguards will be better or maybe not. Um, but if this works at all, if the liberty safeguards deliver benefits at all, I argue in my book it's due to a group of practitioners that I call the empowerment entrepreneurs. So the empowerment entrepreneurs are people who, who can trace a kind of professional history right back through to things like the, uh, the Southern um, Consortium, the development of supported living, deinstitutionalization, normalization. They've got this proud legacy of trying to get people out of these places and into real meaningful homes in the community. And today's generation of empowerment entrepreneurs have found that actually, paradoxically, these tools that strictly legally speaking are just there to authorize detention are actually really useful for unpicking it so they use human rights law they're very well versed in human rights law if you go to a conference full of empowerment entrepreneurs and you say to them something like finish this sentence for me what is the point of making somebody safer if and they'll all say if it only makes them miserable and of course they're citing sir james mumby and they have all these catchphrases you can find them on twitter um and they've, they've discovered how to use the law, mental capacity law, human rights law, and paradoxically frameworks for authorizing detention to challenge restrictive practices. Now they can't abolish them because they haven't got the resources to make available the, form, the forms of care that we actually need to truly get close to abolition. They can't abolish them because they're still bound by best interest, best frameworks. Um, and they can't abolish them because th there are all kinds of economic constraints that this system is working within. So what they're actually doing is kind of using the law to just get their elbows in there and create a bit more space for someone. And, and some of them are doing that really effectively and some of them are probably less so and there are, there are all kinds of unintended consequences going on. But, um, but the book in a way is a kind of hymn to empowerment entrepreneurs to identify them as a group of people and to say, look, you're working under dire constraints, but please try your best while we try and work out a better way to fix the system. Brilliant. Well, I think I can't really, I think, well, A, time-wise, and B, I don't think I could end on a better note than that anyway. So, um, Lucy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the book. And I, I think it's also just important just to reiterate the fact it's available for free, I think is really important. And I, am I right in thinking we've got Welcome to thank, the Welcome Trust to thank for that? We have, yes. Yeah, sorry, I should have said, thank yeah. you, Welcome. They funded the research and that we, we will have a short film coming out in due course about the book, um, but watch Brilliant. the space. Okay. Good. Well, I look forward to the film and I will put a link to the book at the bottom of this. So thank you so much for your time, Lucy. Thank you, Alex. OK, take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.